0: Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 371. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Her Story author interview series, we are joined today by author, historian, museum curator Heath Hartage Lee. Heath Hartage Lee will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program July 15th, 2019, and the title of her presentation is Wives, Mothers, and rescuers how unlikely activists brought their pow husbands home heath Lee comes from a museum education and curatorial background and she has worked at history museums across the country drawing from archival sources personal letters diaries and oral histories in her new book the league of wives the untold story of the women who took on the u.s government to bring their husbands home Heath Hartigley reveals how these unlikely activists went to extraordinary lengths to facilitate their husband's freedom and to account for missing military men. Heath Hartage Lee answers our questions about how these women achieved their success by relentlessly lobbying government leaders, conducting a series of savvy media campaigns and covert meetings with anti-war activists, attempting to negotiate on their own with the North Vietnamese and, most astonishingly, helping to code secret letters to their imprisoned husbands. And the plans for this insurgency that all began on the California island of Coronado, where death and havoc were unseen, but felt deeply by all the island's inhabitants.
1: President Franklin Delano Roosevelt surveyed the flat, sandy fields of North Island on the Coronado Peninsula with an acquisitive eye. FDR, a former assistant secretary of the Navy, saw enormous potential in these jackrabbit-infested plains. Within a few weeks of his visit, the president issued an executive order clearing Coronado of its longtime Army presence and claiming the entire area for a new naval base. With war in the Pacific raging, the island would become a recognized cog in the military's success during World War II. Naval Amphibious Base Coronado was constructed on this barren spot in 1944, and Coronado was now the Navy's training base, its social center, and its incubator for outstanding pilots and their families. They flocked to the peninsula like migrating swallows seeking out nesting grounds. With its Spanish-themed architecture, swaying palm trees, and beautiful stretches of beach, Coronado must have seemed like an exotic Shangri-La to its new inhabitants. As the Navy's dominance grew, so did the tight-knit Navy community, which had its own unique rules and regulations. These rules created a military caste system whereby an officer's rank translated directly to his wife and family's status in this community. The commanding officer and his wife were at the top of the military heap. The men and women knew their place within the system and obeyed orders, both at work and at play. The crisp military element soon formed an essential part of the peninsula's cultural fabric. In contrast to the rigid navy presence, well-heeled jet-setters seeking Coronado's restorative climate made the town a destination for them. Movie stars, politicians, even European royalty. Hollywood icons Jimmy Stewart, Clark Gable, and Katherine Hepburn flocked to the luxurious, red-turreted Hotel Del Coronado to see and be seen, or not. Black eyes became all the rage there when the hotel became the retreat of choice for Hollywood actresses recovering from facelifts. The classic comedy Some Like It Hot, starring Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, and Jack Lemmon, was filmed at the hotel in 1958, enhancing the establishment's already glamorous reputation. The Dell, as the hotel came to be known to locals, boasted its own resident ghost, as well as gigantic crown-shaped light fixtures designed by Wizard of Oz author L. Frank Baum, a frequent visitor to Coronado and the hotel in the 1920s. The formerly sleepy oceanfront town became a sun-drenched version of the Emerald City, with the dell as its palace and naval aviators crossing its skies in their F-8 fighter jets. By the early 1960s, Coronado had plenty of munchkins, too. Children ran rampant day and night all over A Avenue, where Naval Commander James Bond Stockdale, his wife Sybil, and their four sons, Jim Jr., Sid, Stanford, and Taylor, lived. There were at least 56 kids living on the Stockdale's block when the boys were small. One family that lived close by had 12 children. Their mother made daily grocery store runs to feed her brood and had a drinking fountain installed in their home. The bridge across San Diego Bay that would connect the peninsula of Coronado to the city of San Diego in 1969 was not yet built. Consequently, there was almost no traffic for mothers to worry about. The children were out day and night skateboarding, popping wheelies on their bikes, playing frisbee, and happily avoiding adult supervision. The older kids surfed at Coronado Beach, where the Navy SEALs began doing training exercises in 1962. Coronado in this era was straight out of a Beach Boys song, a small, idyllic Southern California town that looked like a Hollywood film set. No one yet knew that the biggest drama the Island Peninsula would see would not be of the cinematic variety. Instead, it would be born of the unexpected consequences of the Vietnam War, a conflict that would bring death to the island and wreak havoc on the lives of the town's high-flying Coronado Navy pilots, their wives, and their children. During the lengthy Vietnam conflict, 1965 to 1973, and even earlier, the communist North Vietnamese would capture hundreds of American military pilots from Coronado and from all across the country. These men would become prisoners of war, POWs, for years, or even worse, would disappear forever as missing in action, MIA. Their wives, who worked tirelessly to save them, were told by their own government to keep quiet and to stay in the shadows, out of the media spotlight until their government could bring the men home. After years of silence, the ladies decided this approach simply would not do. Over time, these military wives would take matters into their own hands, forever changing the course of their husbands' fates and American military culture. The story of these largely unknown heroines begins here in Coronado, with a reluctant sorority of women who would become more powerful and influential than they could ever have imagined
0: that of course is our guest today heath Lee, who will be appearing at the smithsonian associates program july 15th 2019 and the title of her presentation is wives mothers and rescuers how unlikely activists brought their pow husbands home please join me in welcoming to the not old better show author historian museum curator heath Lee. Heath Hardage Lee, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you for joining me today and joining us here on the Smithsonian Associates podcast. I think this subject is one that the Smithsonian audience is just going to love. Your new book, of course, The League of Wives. We're going to hear an awful lot about that. But why don't you tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation?
1: Sure. Well, what I like to do um, with all my books is use a lot of photographs. Um, I think that really brings brings it to life as opposed to just doing a reading from the book. So I do a little bit of that, but most of it is a PowerPoint presentation really focusing on a number of the, I call them the starring wives in the book. There are many supporting characters. There are lots and lots of important people in the book. Um, But the wives, of course, are the stars, and I'm going to focus mainly on Sybil Stockdale and Jane Denton and a few others, Andrea Rander also, who will actually be at the presentation, um, some of them are, are my cover girls on the cover as well, so it'll be great to have some some representation in the audience from the POW wives, and some of the families will be there as well. So I think it'll be it'll be a great night. We'll have I'm sure a lot of audience participation after the Q and A at the end is the most fun for me because I always learn something from the audience, and, and this one in particular will have a lot to say.
0: That's great. I think the having the wives there is going to be such an additional presence. What, a, what an exciting evening this will be on Monday, July 15th We're going to be hearing from Heath Hardage Lee. Topic of her presentation is Wives, Mothers and Rescuers, How Unlikely Activists Brought Their POW Husbands Home and uh, there's going to be a book signing. The book, of course, is The League of Wives. We're talking about that today with Heath Hartage Lee. So Heath Hartage Lee, tell me a little bit about The League of Wives. Because in my research, I was able to find out quite a bit, but certainly uh, my age group and, and our audience may not be as familiar with The League of Wives as a, as a name. So what do you think the story? isn't as well-known, perhaps, until now, until with your your excellent book.
1: Yes, well, I think, you know, so many stories of women, these hidden histories, are are finally becoming very popular, and I've been working in this space for most of my career as a museum curator and as a journalist, a writer, historian, so I'm always, I have always been interested in this topic, and that's really exclusively what I write about. But even those who know the story of the Vietnam War well don't know about these particular women, this League of Wives. And, and the name comes from the San Diego League of Wives that is formed in 1967 under Sybil Stockdale when her husband, Jim Stockdale, the highest ranking naval POW, he is shot down in 1965. And it it takes a couple of years for this to form. But uh, the League of Wives is the precursor for a larger national group of women, a national League of Wives, essentially, and family that go to great lengths to get their husbands out of places like the Hanoi Hilton, the North Vietnamese prisons, as well as the South Vietnamese ones, and um, to advocate for these men who have no voice, uh, the prisoners as well as the missing. So that's where the League of Wives name comes from. And I just think people didn't know about these women, just like, for instance, people didn't know anything about Margot Lee Shutterly's *Women in Hidden Figures*, the NASA scientists that were women. It's a very. I was writing this and almost done um, when that book came out, so I wasn't exactly inspired by it, except after it was such a wonderful story. But or I wasn't influenced um, exactly, but. That genre has become very popular, and it's always been there, which kind of is what makes me laugh, but it's it's kind of being discovered now, particularly by people in Hollywood, um, book publishers. It's become quite popular, and I, as a women's historian, I'm thrilled to see that. That's how you get that wider audience, so we can share these stories about these women.
0: We are thrilled, too, absolutely, with your historical work. I have to tell you something that I chuckled over. My father was Air Force, mm-hmm. and many in our Smithsonian audience will be from the military or former military or, or government. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you this: as I was looking through the book and doing some research, I remembered well the uh, United States Air Force protocol guide. I, I even I was spoke. I was speaking <laughs> to my mother. <laughs> and she remembered it quite well too um oh gosh somewhat positively and some yeah. maybe not not so but there was there was some good advice there There's was some
1: good stuff yeah well
0: tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about your research into what were the purposes of these guides
1: <laughs> yes and they do make you laugh uh-huh. when you read them now and that was really one of my first starting points so to our eyes now we read this and we're like what in the world <laughs> is this about they seem very antiquated I mean being a curator I look at them more as an artifact Mm -hmm. than, you know, a piece of fact or that this was something that was essential. But as you pointed out, these are protocol guides for the wives of military officers. And and they give a lot of good advice about deployments, setting up households, what to expect, um, how to manage children on bases. I mean, they have a lot of practical advice. But when we look at them now, so I'm looking mainly at guides from the 1960s, and they did start even before then, post-World War II, and really during World War II, kind of right at the end. But by the 60s, um, there, there's a lot of sort of social prescriptions and propaganda in there about how a wife should act. So, her job is to help him, the pilot in this case, in the case of most of these wives, her job is to help him do his job. And that's really her be-all and end-all, is to run the household smoothly, to not bother him, particularly before an important mission, because you could cause an accident and everyone might die and it might be your fault. So, some of these prescriptions or some of these dire warnings are, are pretty bold-faced. Uh, so, I would read this and go, oh my gosh, you know, to a 20-something wife, just coming into this, it, it must have been daunting because there's a huge amount of responsibility placed upon the wife for the husband's well-being and their mental health. And you're just not supposed to bother them about anything and take care of everything else. So the wives that I studied fully bought into this um, in the 60s and and definitely prior to the Vietnam War. When we were in a period of relative peace, this was doable somewhat, and things went along smoothly for people like Sybil Stockdale, who was a big fan of the Navy wife until her husband was shot down. And then these protocol guides just go out the window. There's nothing in the index about prisoners in war, of war are missing and what to do.
0: And despite that, despite the the prisoners of war, the missing in action, and, uh, and the protocol guides, the general tether of the time was for women, women. Um, and frankly, to be expected to sit down, shut up and mm-hmm. keep below profile, not my own prescription for, uh, mm-hmm. for what uh, is certainly <laughs> go- happening today. But nonetheless, that was what was going on then. And yet yep. many of these women might not have called themselves feminists, but in order to help mm-hmm. their husbands do their jobs and their jobs at that point were being POWs and in many cases missing in action, they had to get mm-hmm. their point across. And so Absolutely. they had to adopt some civil rights techniques for their cause, and mm-hmm. they had mm-hmm. to do some things that were going to influence some of the movements, and uh, and that maybe wasn't so comfortable. So talk a little bit about that perspective of the of the whole book, because these women, they in some cases, they really had to change their personalities.
1: Absolutely, and I, that's you've hit upon one of the things that fascinated me the most, coming from the time period now, and you can't project your own views if you're going to at least try to be objective as a historian but certainly um I thought well maybe they were they really were feminist and they they really weren't <laughs> and they all told me emphatically no don't use that word so i was mm. a little just taken aback by that but then they explained that feminism was associated at in during their time period with communism and the left the radicals mm. so they saw it because these wives are conservative military wives So they saw feminism as just, you know, way to the left and and not a label, not a a word that they wanted to use to identify with. They did identify, however, as humanists and human rights activists. So more along the lines of the civil rights movement. And they did adopt a lot of techniques like the sit-in type techniques they would apply to different actions that they took. So so their goal here was was to put aside very selflessly their own rights as women. And this fight was about getting their husbands out, getting some publicity, and getting rid of this whole keep quiet policy under Lyndon Johnson that told these women to sit down, shut up, be quiet, and let the government handle it because the government knew better. It didn't take long for the wives to realize that, A, they knew a lot more than the government people did, and B, that the government didn't really know anything and certainly didn't know better then they did the best way to play this with the north vietnamese and and that was also what i thought was so cool about this is is they were diplomats and covert operatives far beyond what anyone in the State Department could have done or understood. So, it was it was like, you know, James Bond in reverse. It was very cool to watch them do their thing. So, so, that's kind of the origins, but this is all playing out against the civil rights movement and feminism, the gay rights movement. There is so much going on. That's why I love this time period because it is so descriptive and revolutionary that you don't have to work that hard as a writer because it's all so dramatic to begin with, not to mention the war itself.
0: Well, I know you've worked very hard, and I know our audience will just love this time, this uh, time of uh, the Vietnam War and all of the other social things that were going on. To recall this historically is going to be very much a part of their um, memories and uh, in in some cases uh, perhaps not so positive, but the way you've handled it certainly is almost... um, it's laudatory of of these women. We, of course, are with Heath Hartage Lee. Heath Hartage Lee will be at the Smithsonian Associates Program Monday, July 15th, 2019. And I want to say to Heath Hartage Lee that almost as a follow-up to to our previous question, this idea of kind of keeping quiet, the wives were very much Mm. uh, forced into this keep quiet policy by the government, and the government wasn't quite so aware of the rat-infested prisons, the mosquito-laden prisons, and Mm. all of these other things that were going on. But this keep quiet policy really led to the formation of the League of Wives and probably galvanized the group's insurgency. Is that right?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. That is exactly right. <laughs> they just got really mad, which is very fun as the narrator in the background. I always felt like I was watching a movie and all I was doing is just transcribing what was going on. I mean, they got very, very angry and who could blame them at being told repeatedly, you know, they were not smart they didn't understand Jane Denton, one of the primary wives in the book in her diary had had talked about going to, the State Department early on to visit after her husband Jeremiah Denton was shot down and they said, Well, don't keep pushing all the buttons because you might mess the switchboard up. And that was the general attitude. And then the policy, even before LBJ, I, I blame him for a lot of things, but I can't blame him for coming up with the keep quiet policy. Even under JFK, that was the policy where if your husband, son, you know, father, whatever was shot down, if a serviceman was shot down you were only, as the family, supposed to give people rank, name, and serial number, just like the prisoners in the camps. You were not allowed to tell anybody outside your immediate family on the home front what was going on. Now, this kind of vaguely makes sense in... Wars where prisoners were not kept for long periods of time. Some of the previous wars where you didn't have prisoners being kept for eight years. But this war um, in Vietnam is entirely different than the Korean War, than World War II. And some of these guys are kept up to eight years. So this is not a tenable position to keep quiet for years and years. Now, the ladies do this for a number of years. Sybil doesn't form the San Diego League of Wives till 67. Jim is shot down in 65, as is Jerry Denton, Jane's husband. So they do keep quiet and just among themselves, those that are in the same predicament, they bond together, they hang out, and of course, they talk among themselves, but they're not telling the general public. They're you know, making stuff up. Oh, he's in Vietnam. We don't know what he's doing. But it's just not tenable. Um, And what really the real kicker is when they realize that um, LBJ and Averill Harriman, who's the POW MI ambassador in the State Department, know the men are being tortured. But they decide there is no purpose to telling the American public about this. What good would it do? And this is a very self-serving thing that they do. Um, The war is extremely unpopular. LBJ wants to focus on domestic policy, not the war. um, And he knows this will not help his cause as president or help him win elections. Now, legitimately, at first, they think that it might derail negotiations with the North Vietnamese if if they say a whole lot. So for a while, keep quiet makes sense, but not for long. So the ladies. Turn the tide when they do go public finally um, in 1968. And that's Sybil Stockdale who goes to the San Diego Union newspaper and goes public, not with the full torture report, which she knows from coding secret husband secret letters to her husband. But just the general situation and that the North Vietnamese are not obeying the Geneva Conventions. And then under President Nixon, they have the support of the government eventually to go public in a big way. And that changes the whole game.
0: And in fact, and, and so tell us, so uh, uh, if we fast forward a little bit to Senator John McCain, mm-hmm. he made a point mm-hmm. of, of stressing some of the importance of that go public. What, what was it that he said? He really brought this home
1: oh he really did and it you know i interviewed him kind of towards the beginning of doing this and i didn't even fully realize w- what he had said and how it fit into this puzzle until towards the end of the book so it's always interesting when you do interviews they're pieces of a puzzle that you have to see everything to fit it together but he said some things to me like um when The ladies, you know, were doing—they eventually are doing all kinds of going public in the papers. They're coming to Paris to confront the North Vietnamese. They're getting the media involved. And he said it was like a light switch going off with the treatment of the prisoners of war when this was going on with the women. And this is about 1969 when the torture finally stops. Uh, It was just, he said, like a light switch going off. The treatment improved. He was moved from solitary confinement Um, The other piece of that is Ho Chi Minh died, which also helped with the torture. But he was convinced that without the women, many more men would have died in prison. They could have all been hostages and not been released at the end of the war because the women demanded that be a condition of ending the war um, and the best accounting for the missing possible. So he was convinced that the women had made all the difference with their advocacy.
0: Sadly, powerfully, I thought in the book, you know, in some of these instances, and you, you mentioned the names, Jeremiah Denton, Jim Stockdale, we, we, we know these these men's names, you're introducing us to the wives now, but some of the wives were initially told that their husbands were dead, only to learn later that they mm-hmm. were alive, and the wives weren't mm-hmm. able to talk about that because of the keep quiet policy, but mm-hmm. that must have led to some just some Tremendous reunions. So maybe tell us a little bit about some of those reunions and the effect that it it had on the on the family, and even speaking out, uh, almost the therapeutic effect it had on the wives.
1: Yes. Well, the reunions, and and you mentioned some stories like that. One of them, um, I was on the Today Show with one of the wives, Marty Halliburton, whose husband Porter Halliburton was. Uh, they said first he was missing in action, then killed in action. They had a funeral for Porter, a gravestone, a service, and Marty had sort of moved on with her life. And a year and a half later, they were like, guess what, he's a prisoner of war. So you can imagine how shocking this was. Uh, It was just difficult to wrap her head around. So when he came home, he just, he couldn't, and then he heard about all the things Marty had done with her advocacy work. He just could not believe the links that she had gone to. And and they are, of course, very tightly bonded because of this. And I think that happened to a lot of these couples, particularly the senior officers and their wives like Jane and Jerry Denton, Sybil Stockdale and Jim. They had had the opportunity to be married for quite a while before the men were shot down. So I'll say the divorce rate is very low among this group. And when they come home, it, it's just— I think it was a little difficult um, to—I did hear some things about when the men came off the planes. A lot of the women were waiting kind of in tent-type areas that were set up or other rooms, and they were thinking it wasn't all celebratory. They weren't really sure— what kind of person was going to walk off the plane and particularly the psychiatrist in in the navy for instance had warned these women about all kinds of problems these guys could have depression anger sexual dysfunction um and then i you know i interviewed all these wives and they're like nope no problems with any of that so it it was great to see that all these issues that had been thought of for the most part with these guys, the Hanoi Hilton guys in particular, um, didn't happen. The PTSD rate among this group was extremely low. Mm. It's it's crazy Mm. low, it's like 4%, which is huge because they had their own community, just like the wives did. They had a system, they had a support system The rank was established, Um, the code of conduct was observed even in prison, and they had a hierarchy that, that kept it together in a way that was positive. So the reunions were mostly very positive. The only issue, I think, was adjusting to the women having become such powerful Lobbyists, diplomats, covert operatives, and and then to to go back to being a wife and mother alone, which they all found very fulfilling, but it was it was a little difficult for some more than others to kind of re- relinquish that power and that um, that position that they had gained during the war.
0: Heath Hartage Lee, what a pleasure it is to speak to you. I just have one final question. The book, of course. The League of Wives the untold story of the women who took on the US government to bring their husbands home. The book is both emotional and educational. So I wonder what did you learn that surprised you about the League of Wives?
1: Wow, there was a lot. I mean, I felt like I it, I learned so many lessons from these women about just how to operate in your own life. I always think when I'm in a difficult situation whether work or at home, I think what would Sybil Stockdale and Jane Denton do? I I literally just run it by them mentally. Like, how would they handle this? Because they're very different, but they both had this yin and yang of different personalities working together to work things out. So that, to me, is something I always think about. And also, I was never very... Politically interested, before this book, I I was sort of, I hate to admit it, I was sort of apolitical, you know, trying to be a historian, be objective, and I still always try to do that with my books, present both sides, let the reader decide but now I'm a political junkie and I can't get enough of it. So like I wake up every day, I'm so excited to read the paper. What is going on today? It just really was like a political awakening for me because I got so mad that the wives had to put up with what they put up with, of course, from the North Vietnamese, but from our own government. It was just awful what they had to put up with. So now I've always got my eye out for, you know, women and being discriminated against or what's, whatever's going on. Um, I'm much more, I think, politically aware than I was before working on a very political topic, like the prisoners of war and missing. So um, those are kind of the two takeaways, I think, from the book.
0: Thank you so much. Heath Hartage-Lee has been our guest. Heath Hartage-Lee will be at the Smithsonian Associates Program presenting on Wives, Mothers, and Rescuers, How Unlikely Activists Brought Their POW Husbands Home. Heath Hartage-Lee, thank you. I Personally, I'm going to be sharing this book with the wives in my world and my life so that they can enjoy this too, but I really encourage our audience to pick up this book, The League of Wives heath Lee, check it out and uh, you'll find more details about heath Lee on our website along with links of where to find the book the great book but thank you so much for your time your generous time today really appreciate it heath Lee.
1: thank you so much paul
0: my thanks to heath Lee, who will be appearing at the smithsonian associates program july fifteenth, two 2019 and the title of her presentation is wives mothers and rescuers how unlikely activists brought their POW husbands home. Heath Lee will be appearing at the Ripley Center in Washington, D.C., and there are more details available on our website. Thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show, and thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Remember, talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.